Well, good day. This is John Lewis. I'm coming to you from beautiful downtown Morgantown and my basement studio. This podcast is all about my lifelong passion for antique cars and my love of Ford Thunderbirds. This is episode two of season one, and today the discussion will be about the first generation of Ford Thunderbirds. We'll discuss the other 10 generations in the upcoming podcasts. Before I get started, I'd like to take a moment and give a couple of shout-outs to my son, Thomas Lewis, and future daughter-in-law, Lacey Knapper, for their ideas in helping me plan a smooth and informational podcast. I'd also like to take a moment and encourage you to visit my website. I have left the address in the description box for the site. Finally, I'd like to acknowledge Paul McLaughlin, Alan Tast, whose information on T-Birds I reference informing the information of this podcast. I thought it would be interesting to look at the first generation of T-Birds and discuss how my favorite marquee started. Each week, I'll follow up with one of the other new generations. There were in all 11 generations of Thunderbirds. The first generation of Thunderbird is affectionately called the Baby Birds, and I think that's for obvious reasons they were the start. Ford committed to a three-year redesign of the T-Birds, and this will be the last time you see a two-door T-Bird until the Retro Birds of 2002. Of course, the 55, 56, and 57 Birds are the most collectible and sought-after birds today. These birds were in response to the World War II vets wanting an exciting two-seater like they had seen in Europe. It was also built in response to the Chevy Corvette. Kind of. It's interesting to note that Ford never did advertise it as a sports car, but more of a personal luxury car. In fact, Ford started a new segment of car uh, and a new uh, industry developed around what was known as these personal luxury cars. I always found that quite interesting. We would later on see things such as the Pontiac Grand Prix, the Monte Carlo, and Buick Riviera uh, also entering the luxury field. And this personal luxury field still lasts uh, through the 70s and early 80s. Um, we start to see its demise, I think, in the 90s. Um, but to have a car start a whole new segment is quite interesting, I thought. The 56, 57s, and 55s were built on a 102-inch wheelbase overall. Their length was 175 inches to 181 inches. Curb weight was around 2,980 pounds. So these cars were light, and depending on what engine you had in them, they could scoot. The difference um, in the links, you might be wondering, was due to the Continental kit that was put on the 56 Thunderbirds. These uh, Continental kits added about 10 inches to the car's overall length. Uh, the first engine on board for the 55 T-Birds was a 292 cubic inch uh, Y-Block. This V8 was rated at about 193 horsepower. And it was interesting to note, if you got the automatic transmission, it was rated at 198 horsepower. That's kind of interesting because usually an automatic transmission um, I have found early on took away from horsepower figures, didn't add to them. Uh, the new T-Bird was introduced to the public on October 26, 
1954. Uh, production had actually started on September 1st, 1994, and for the first generation of the baby bird, it stopped on December 13th, 1957. Uh, production for the 1950 T-Bird was around 16,155 cars. Maybe 16,202 uh, cars was the actual number because um, there were 49 units that were built in Mexico. Uh, this is really interesting. Mexico, who knew? I never knew that fact. Um, you'll find MEX on the ID tag instead of an F for the Dearborn assembly plant. I never ever knew that there were any Thunderbirds built in Mexico. And I'll tell you what, I've never seen that identification tag, so that's something I'm going to start hunting for at car shows I go to. Um, Mexican Thunderbirds. Quite interesting. So, in 1956, um, well, let me back up here just a little bit. Um, in 1957, the production figures uh, were at 21,380 units. Also, so I think that's pretty interesting. So, in 55, you had 16,155 cars built. Production dropped. I didn't give you this figure. Production dropped in 1956 to 15,631 units. And then you see a jump in the production figures of uh, the 1957 model of 21,380 units. In 1956, we saw the T-Bird gain a new engine, a 312 cubic inch wide block. It's really interesting because this wide block came in three versions, a 200 horsepower version, a 215 horsepower version, and a 245 horsepower version. Uh, the engine codes were M, P, and D respectively. At the low curb weight, these Thunderbirds could really scoot. 1957, the engine options exploded. You could still get the 292 cubic inch wide block. You could get the 312, now called the Thunderbird Special. It's interesting because now you start seeing the Thunderbird Special engine badging on other Ford products outside of uh, just the Thunderbird. They start putting Thunderbird engines in other cars of the make. Um, it's interesting because remember, these first Thunderbirds were supposed to be halo cars, so they'd get you into the dealership. And if you didn't quite, couldn't quite afford a Thunderbird, you might be able to afford one of the other cars that had Thunderbird badging on it. So you might get the best of both worlds. Uh, it's also interesting to note um, that quickly with this uh, new Thunderbird car that they started producing uh, different engines for it. Uh, okay, I'll do the comparison again. So with the Corvette, you're looking at uh, a blue flame uh, six-cylinder engine that it started out with, and the Ford Thunderbird automatically started out with a V8. Kind of interesting. Uh, in 57, though, uh, you could also get another 312 Thunderbird Super V8. Now this was different than the Thunderbird Special, but you could get the 312 cubic inch Thunderbird Super V8 at 270 horsepower. And finally, the rare but desirable uh, 312 cubic inch Thunderbird Supercharged V8 at 300 horsepower. These superchargers were provided by Paxton and they are very rare today.
I've always found uh, the engines and their horsepower interesting. I have a V6 uh, in stock form in a, in a 2004 uh, Mustang, and in stock form it produces almost 300 horsepower by itself. So in 57, you could buy a V8, get it supercharged, get it up to 300 horsepower. In 2004, a V6 is producing 300 horsepower in its stock form. Now just think about that for a moment because the new Coyote engines at Ford are building, the new Hellcat engines that Chrysler are building, they start at 500 horsepower and go to over 1,000 horsepower just on pumped gas. So the development of engines has always been quite interesting to me. Uh, the baby birds were successful on many fronts. Um, styling was great, you have to admit that. And the styling's still great to this day. Uh, when someone sees a, uh, a uh, 55, 56, 57 Thunderbird. Uh, I think they, they fall in love with it. Even if they don't want to admit it, I think they fall in love with it. I know I still like them, but as stated in the last episode, I can't fit in them. So all I can do is stand back and admire them. Um, Ford had a um, philosophy, as did many of the car makers back then. Uh, they would give you a nice um, standard car but then they would give you a high amount of options so that you could um, make the car that you wanted. But also options are where they kind of made their money. So they uh, wanted to make sure that there was enough to keep you interested and that you would add to the car. Um, the original Thunderbird, the base price was $2,900. We look at that sum today, mm, not too bad. But back then, it was a lot of money. Uh, so the option list, uh, that we'll find in 56 is um, automatic transmission, power brakes, power steering, fender skirts, power seats, and a radio. Uh, the cars came um, the cars came with a con in convertible mode and you could also have a removable top this removable top was fiberglass. Um, and I want to back up a second. I think I made a mistake there telling you about the option list. That option list basically came uh, from 1955. So, but the cars came in convertible and in 1955 you could also get the removable fiberglass hardtop. Um, so the cars typically, although they started out at about 2900 a typical Thunderbird would cost you, once you optioned it out with what you'd like, most Thunderbirds sold for around $4,000. Uh, like all new cars, uh, there were adjustments that had to be made, and customers complained about some of the things that um, they felt were wrong with the uh, original Thunderbird. So one of the first problems, and probably the most documented historical-wise, um, was the blind spot that the hard top created when you put the hard top on the car. Uh, there was no way to see out uh, the side of the car to look at traffic. Um, so for 56, uh, you'll find hard tops that have portholes in them. Um, check out the movie American Graffiti. Uh, Suzanne Summers, uh, an uh, unknown actress at the time, uh, probably introduced a porthole on the 56 Thunderbird to a whole nother generation as uh, she drove around in the movie in a white Thunderbird and you only caught glimpses of her through the side window and through the porthole. So check out the movie American Graffiti 
and checked out this white thunderbird. I think it was Richard Dreyfus that chased her around the movie uh, so we could finally get to see who she was. But something that was interesting in 56 also, if you didn't want your hard top with a porthole in it, Ford still offered the other hard top that you could buy. The second problem uh, that people complained about, that there was too much heat in the floor well. And this heat came from um, the transmission tunnel and also the engine compartment. And people complained that the interior of the car was just too hot. So Ford decided to fix this too. And what was their solution? Well, their solution was adding side vents on the front fenders that could be opened up from the inside. And really, that's the easiest way to tell if you're looking at a 55 or 56 is to look for those air vent doors on the side of the cars. Um, a third problem, which I never knew about, this was the first time when I was doing a little bit of research, the first time I'd heard about this problem, was buffeting when the top was down. Um, there was too much wind noise and um, people complained that when the top was down there was just too much wind noise. So it was really interesting. Ford went back to the 30s and they found some wind wings and they added these wind wings uh, to the sides of the, the windshield. I believe it was the side of the windshield uh, to deflect the airflow. Well, you know, like they say, everything old is new again. But uh, so Ford reached back into its parts bin and reached back into its engineering in the 30s and brought up some wind wings. I thought that was kind of interesting. Trunk space. They complained heavily about trunk space. Uh, at that time, there were no space-saving spares, so the spare tire um, was full-size. And when they put a full-size tire, which I think were 15-inch tires at the time, into the trunk, there was little space to put anything else in. So people said they needed um, uh, more trunk space, especially when you consider that these cars were being sold for adventure. So uh, going on a picnic or going to the golf club or something like that, where you needed a little bit more trunk space, um, couldn't happen with this spare tire in it. So, what was Ford's fix? Well, they put on the famous Continental kit. So they moved the rear tire, or they moved the spare tire out to the rear bumper and hung that weight onto the back of the car. Well, it added 10 inches. It added 10 inches to the car's overall length. And it also added some handling problems. But, they, most people were satisfied with the styling for a while. Um, at first, the um, handling problems, it sounded like to me from listening to people that most people um, put up with the handling problems and basically learned to adjust their driving habits. I think it made the front wheels light, so there wasn't as much feel to the road. Um, but over time, people grew tired of this. And um, in 57, we won't see the Continental kit. Now, because it was a styling success, you find aftermarket people offering uh, Continental kits to be put on both the 55 and the 57s. But as a Ford option, I don't believe the Continental kit lasted more than that year. If I'm wrong, uh, please let me know, okay? Uh, 56 options they added to the list were seat belts, windshield washers, overdrive transmission, white wall tires, air conditioning, and power windows. A little sidelight here, and this is just my opinion, but 
if you're going after an antique car and it has the options of power windows, please be advised that you're in for a world of spending money. I have uh, my Thunderbirds a 63. I have um, six power window switches in them. And I think I've replaced each switch uh, twice. And the um, switches I get aren't of good quality because they come from outside of America. Uh, I can't find an American sourced switch. And uh, the switches are expensive. I think two of the switches together cost more than the power window option did for the entire car. But that's just a sidelight. Um, one of the other things I found interesting that they complained about was there wasn't enough room to take their family anywhere. Now, so you go to the Ford dealership, you're looking at a um, Thunderbird, which is a two-seater. You decide you want to buy it because it's sporty, it's fast, it looks sexy. You're excited, you get home, and you realize, hey, I can't fit the rest of my family in it. So, <laughs> we're going to see this change in 58. Um, so the Thunderbird can haul more people, but in 55, 56, 57, you went out to buy a two-seat personal luxury car, and you complain that it's not enough room to fit your family. Well, America changes, that's for sure. So, one of the things, though, that you will find out, especially in 56, um, with this complaint, now Ford never did, option-wise, do too much to help with this uh, not enough room for the family problem. They end up designing a whole new car. But some aftermarket people um, do listen to the people and you can actually you can actually get what they call a bird nest where they'll convert the trunk into what in the 30s where it's known as a rumble seat. But you can actually they actually convert the trunk over to two more seats. Now I've seen these bird nests and when the um, seats are up they look pretty good I'm not sure I'd want to climb over to get into them uh, the scratches on the car uh, the wear and tear on the fenders bumpers are going to be something else they do look cool practicality I don't think they were very good okay one of the options not an option but one of the changes in the 56 uh, Ford Thunderbird that I think gets overlooked but it was not only for the Thunderbird, it was for the whole Ford line. Because in 56, Ford changed over from a six volt electrical system to a 12 volt electrical system for their entire car line. Now, you might not think that's exciting, but uh, for car restorers it is. Our cars today still run on 12 volt systems. So, uh, a lot of times when you go to fix these electrical systems in these old cars, you'll find someone can understand a 12 volt system a little bit better than they understand a six volt system, I think. At least that's what I've run into with, with my car. Now, we get to 57. 57 was the iconic uh, T-Bird of the 50s. And it would be fair to say that when most people hear the word T-Bird, the 57's what they think of. Uh, we see fins on the T-Bird for the first time. And probably this starts marking uh, the fin war, <laughs> or you start seeing uh, 
if you remember cars out of the 50s and the fins uh, start getting excessive, I think until, mm, is it 1960, that you probably have the biggest fins on the, on the uh, GM Cadillac. My years might be off air a little bit, but you see fins on the 57 Thunderbird. Um, the option list um, grew. And now get this, here's the option list for 57. You could get a tonneau cover. So I guess if you were by yourself, you could put this tonneau cover on the passenger side also. You get a magic air heater. You can get a locking gas cap. I guess they started having um, problems with people uh, stealing gasoline. Um, a hooded mirror. These are cool. I've seen these hooded mirrors. I think they're rare. Uh, I don't see many of them, uh, but these hooded mirrors are really neat. Uh, you can get a front fender, fender antenna. You can get an engine dress-up kit. These engine dress-up kits were really cool. I've seen them on some 57s and the chrome, just enough, they add just enough chrome to the underside of the engine compartment. I think they're pretty cool. Uh, you can get deluxe antennas. I don't know what those are. I've never seen a picture of them. And uh, the Thunderbirds that I've seen uh, usually have the front fender antenna. So I don't know what deluxe antennas are. Uh, you could get backup lights, turbine wheel covers, or wire wheel covers. Now, the wire wheel covers uh, were pretty sharp. Uh, and many of the 55, 56, and 57 Thunderbirds you'll see with wire wheels. Uh, I personally like the turbine wheel covers. I think those look really sharp. Um, I've never been a wire wheel cover um, fan, but uh, most people are, so to each their own. And as long as they're enjoying their car, that's what it's about, right? So uh, the other one of the other options you could get was a town and country radio. Uh, this radio was interesting from the standpoint that um, it was one of the probably first uh, signal-seeking radios. That's why it was town and country. When you're out in the country, it was harder to get a signal. So you, you didn't want to be driving down the road and spending all your time uh, trying to tune the radio in. Uh, so I know that uh, in talking to one Thunderbird aficionado, that's also an option that they look for when they're restoring the cars is to get the town and country uh, radio. Um, and also there were an option of um, rear mounted antennas. Uh, so um, I would say since there were three different options for antennas, um, listening to music was starting to be a big thing for Detroit. So um, I've seen a few rear mounted antennas, uh, not too many. Um, one of the interesting things though, one of the big options for 57 was the 312 engine with a VR57 supercharger provided by Paxton. Now this is an ultra rare option and a lot of people go after it. But something to keep in mind, according to Ford records, there are only 211 of that, that engine sold in a Thunderbird for 57. So out of a, a, a total production, only 211 of those engines were sold. No wonder most people go out looking for them. It's also interesting to note that the 56 um, T-Bird during the three-year run, it was the lowest in the productions of all three cars. Uh, I would think that was probably due to the fact that, you know, excitement over the first model, and then uh, after hearing about some of the problems with the first model, uh, 
people probably wanted to wait to see what was going to happen for 57, but there was enough interest that there wasn't a huge drop, I think by maybe a thousand cars, but there was a significant drop in the number of cars that was sold for 56. Maybe uh, with that Continental kit, people started talking about some of the poor handling. Maybe people wanted to wait till 57. I don't know for sure. That's just a guess on my part. But I thought something was interesting that I saw in the ads for um, the 57s also. Uh, one of the option lists was um, you could buy a convertible top and vinyl or you could opt to get rayon. And rayon came in different colors. So we were starting to see the use of um, man-made exotic materials. I mean, we've seen plastic now. We're seeing plastic in the 50s. Rayon's a plastic too, but we're starting to see the introduction of other um, what would be considered man-made materials into the cars. I think that was kind of interesting. Um, growing up in uh, Parkersburg, West Virginia, I lived by a big rayon manufacturing plant. We had a rayon elementary, <laughs> rayon elementary school. So I kind of found that fact interesting to me. Uh, all right, I'm going to kind of close up here, okay, um, with the ultimate comparison again. Um, so, um, since the early birds and the Corvettes don't seem to be separated a lot, and I think I'm kind of doing the same thing, but it, they are interesting statistics. Um, remember, Chevy built the Corvette as a sports car. They sold it as a sports car. Ford sold the Thunderbird as a personal luxury car. But because they were two-seaters, there was always going to be comparison drawn between the two. So, in the initial three years run, in the initial three-year run for Ford, Ford built 53,166 T-Birds. In contrast, during the same time period, Chevy sold only 14,446 vets. That is almost a four to one sales margin. In fact, it would take Chevy five years to get to 53,166 Corvettes sold. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Thought that was pretty interesting. Well, that's all I have for you today. I hope you found some parts of this podcast interesting. Um, I'm always um, anxious to hear from you, so don't forget to uh, email me or leave me a message on on the site. Um, I encourage you to, to, again, check out my website if you just like to look at cars. Um, I want to encourage you that whatever antique you have, whatever vehicle you have that you're restoring, uh, please drive it. Please use it. Don't let it sit around and gather dust. Don't make it a museum piece. Get it out there. Let other people see it drive it, and have fun. So until next Sunday, uh, have a great week, and remember, drive those classics.